And we're back with another episode of Songs You Should Know. Number three, <clears throat> Mixter's birth year, 1966. I'm Mixter, by the way. And I'm Jimbo. And, here and we this go. is your show, uh, man. 19... I'm, I'm going to defer well, you every time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Wish I didn't have a head cold, but... Here we go. <laughs> oh, my little babies. 1966, the year John Lennon said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Yep, he said it. <laughs> Some of the quotes introduced that year were a beam me up, Scotty, have a year away from Burger King, and fly the friendly skies from United. Also in 1966, the game Twister was introduced and denounced by critics as sex in a box. Not to be confused with a Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> also that year, the the Beach Boys. Yes. Also that year, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds uh, and Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde were both released uh, that year. Blonde on Blonde in May and Pet Sounds in October. And uh, a song from each of those albums will be featured in this episode. But first. But that's why I snapped my fingers. But first. So we're not even starting with uh, one of the two songs you just mentioned. <laughs> we're starting yeah. completely differently with <laughs> the Trogs version of Wild Thing. Exactly. Which is actually a cover song, and we'll talk about that here in a bit. So the three songs are the Trogs version of Wild Thing, the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, and Bob Dylan's Just Like a Woman. Yeah. So you had a good birth year, man. I know. You know? <laughs> of course, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Just luck of the draw. That's right. <laughs> Here's the cards. Here we go. So let's start out with song one is uh, Wild Thing, which is actually is a cover version by the Trogs, which is the most uh, popular one. Um, the song was written by Chip Taylor and originally recorded by the American band The Wild Ones in 1965. But it was covered by the Trogs, which is an English band. Um, and you know what Trog stands for, right? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> it stands for troglodytes. Which, they of course, we all know are. Originally, <laughs> they, they were originally called the troglodytes. And then they, uh, they shortened it to the, to the Trogs. <laughs> and somewhere, and I have not looked for their gigs, but somewhere there is still a touring version of this band today. Right, that's what you had said. And uh, the Trog's original members were Reg Presley on vocals, Ronnie Bond on drums, Pete Staples on bass, and Chris Britton on guitar. So, and there's a there's a weird story behind you know the release of this song because 
you know, when you when you record something, you also have a distributor that that puts it out there, makes the records, and actually prints them and and, sure. and puts them out in stores. And so there was a a, a dispute, and so. The Trogs version was being issued on two different labels. So you can find Atco versions and you can find Fontana versions of the single. I have a Fontana reissue, by the way, from a couple of years later. But um, they're both from the same master recording. And so Billboard magazine decided to just combine the sales from both releases. So it's it's the only song in Billboard history to simultaneously reach number one for two different companies. Wow. That, yeah. You won't find that today. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to happen anymore. Yeah. So with that being said, uh, it, uh, it is ranked uh, number 257 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. So that's not bad. Somewhere, I mean, in, somewhere in the middle. Yep. You know, so it, it hit number. There, there have been a lot of songs released over the years. Well, that's true. So that's not, uh, you know, for a little three chord, little uh, kind of funny little tune. It's not bad. It it did hit number one in the U.S. and it hit number two uh, in the U.K. <clears throat> so I for, I forgot to look up what what beat it out in the U.K. What kept it from being the number one song in the U.K. Because they were a U.K. band. Uh, that's true. So and then uh, if everybody's familiar with the song. What's it mean? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? But, what do the lyrics mean? I don't know. It's pretty straightforward, but there's a Chip Taylor has a good story about it. Though. It is. So Chip Taylor wrote this, and he said he just started chugging away on a couple of chords, and he said within a couple of minutes, uh, he had the chorus, and he was kind of liking it. And he said uh, he didn't really know what he was going to say, you know, in, in, in between during those breaks. So, uh, but, but he was thinking that there was something cool and sweaty about this cool and sweaty hmm. what, <laughs> what could we be talking about so he said <laughs> you know and it and he said it it did have a sexual kind of feeling song and, and he didn't want to be embarrassed in the studio so he had the producer shut the lights off and and already have the mic set uh in the booth there and uh he said just um in uh a stool and he said just go ahead and in a put the tape in and hit record and, and just let him keep, you know, d- doing his thing. So he said it was, it was kind of a departure for him of, of uh, songs he had done before. And, uh, you know, it, it's not one of those pretty little country songs. It's, it's very sexy. And, and, and it's important to remember Chip Taylor is not the person that you are listening to when you hear the Trogs do wild thing. Okay. This was Chip's demo of the song. He had go. to go through this just just to make a demo of it, you know, before it was actually released. Somebody else could make it a, uh, so somebody else could make it a hit. <laughs> <laughs> now, the one of the th- the ways that a lot of people were introduced to this song was through the um, the images of Jimi Hendrix burning his guitar at Monterey Pop. Have you seen the Monterey Pop movie? I have not not in a while, oh. but yet where where he likes yeah it no here. I mean well that's awesome and and he was trying to figure out how to follow the who because the who of course at that point were still trashing their guitars and and smacking everything over and doing all kinds of stuff and so Jimi Hendrix plays Wild Thing 
and sits down <laughs> in front of his guitar and pours lighter fluid on it and lights his guitar on fire. And that was his way of trying to equal what the Who were doing. Not bad, Jimmy. I'll, I'll give you a 10 for style points. That's for sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, then, and we talked about in our last episode, the Kingsman and Louie Louie. And they covered Wild Thing in 1966 as well. Yeah, which I didn't know. Yeah, well, there was a lot of stuff going on. Now, you do know, I know that in the MTV era, you must remember the Sam Kinison thing. My, my favorite, because, uh, you know, it, if you look back at that in 1988, made a big video, Sam did. And, and you know, back then he had he, he had the big players of that time. Bon Jovi was in it, Aerosmith, uh, Guns N' Roses, a couple guys from Rat and Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. And, and of course, uh, back at that time, Jessica Hahn was the female star of that video. Sam, yes. uh, <clears throat> Sam changed the lyrics to that song a, a little bit <laughs> to, uh, you know, fit him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to fit that time. And, uh, Speaking of that, a little bit earlier, I remember in, uh, I think it was the winter of 1987, I was out with a, uh, um, a regional rock band, which you actually started, and we were home in Fargo, and uh, Cheap Trick, it was on a Sunday night, we were home, and Cheap Trick had played the Fargo Civic Center, and so there was only, at that time, there was only one bar open, uh, the North Dakota bars were still, had Sunday closing laws, so there was only one bar that had uh, live entertainment it was called Jerry's Lounge, I believe, or Jerry's Bar in Moorhead, Minnesota. I wasn't there, but uh, Dan Fuca and Pete Johnson, who you know uh, from the band I was in, they, they went to Jerry's, and I think they went to the Cheap Trick show as well. And so after, after the show, who shows up <laughs> at Jerry's, which is probably about as big as your living room, is uh, most of the members of Cheap Trick. And so Robin Zander gets up there, and apparently he had like a white veil on. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, so, and so he gets up there with, uh, I don't remember who was playing that night, but I, I know most of those guys. And uh, the, the sound man, Wally, actually recorded that night. And there was, uh, for a while, there was a bootleg tape of, of old Robin singing uh, um Wow, I, have to, I have to tell you, I have to go into my box of tapes because you gave me a copy of this. Wow, there you go. <laughs> I was wondering what happened to that. <laughs> well, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would not have thrown that away. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I have a copy of Robin Zander at Jerry's Bar in Moorhead, Minnesota, yeah. 1987. There's there a couple other songs, uh, cool songs that they played too, but if you listen to the tape or if you were there you know every, everybody who has covered that song changes the words and so it was it was fairly raunchy yeah <laughs> so we'll just say uh we'll we'll leave it at that so robin had his own version uh with the white veil on but, yes uh, so weird but it was also go ahead and tell him it was well wild thing in, is, the is movie, also in the movie major league of course you know so was it charlie sheen his character was, was the wild thing yeah and then um, for a while, Springsteen and the E Street Band have been known to just pull stuff out of you know their pocket and say, "Okay, we're gonna 
we're going to hammer on this for a while. So for a while on the working on a dream tour, they would do wild thing too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for both you and me, I'm sure it was one of the first songs we ever learned because it, it's it, just, it's like it, Louie Louie. It I think it was one of the, yeah, it's, and I think that was one of the first songs that you taught me and cause it was, it was fairly easy. Well, I, I still played it three very chords, badly, but and it's, yeah. Three chords and it's timing, okay? Because it's not just straight through. It's dun, 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 dun. So you have to actually feel timing as you go through it. Not complicated timing, but some kind of timing, you know? So, of course, this song became a major inspiration for garage bands, punk rock bands. I mean, if you haven't played, you know, Wild Thing as a guitar player somewhere in your life, I would be very surprised. Yeah, I'd be very disappointed. <laughs> you may want to rethink your day job. <laughs> now, so some of the trivia I learned about this song was that, okay, so the guy that wrote Wild Thing, Chip Taylor, also wrote Juice Newton's big hit in 1981. Do you have a soundbite of it? If not, it's Angel I of the don't. Morning. <laughs> Angel of the Morning. I should have grabbed a soundbite. It's like, yes, just call me Angel of the Morning. And I'm like, Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning are from the same songwriter. Well, you know, as we get older, we all clean up our act. So maybe he, maybe he grew up. You know what I mean? Little and then, Chip Taylor. Yep. <laughs> Another weird, he's, he's, his brother is John Boyd. Which I didn't know. And so that makes and, him. <laughs> and he's also the uncle of Angelina right. Jolie then. Yes, so so it's like, him, yeah, it's like, wow. <laughs> See, people, these are little these are little tips that you're not going to get anywhere else. Well, you have to go dig for them. We're just going to present them to you on a plan. You go dig. We've done the digging first. Yeah. Please. Yeah, we've dug for you. We got our hands dirty, and this is what you get. <laughs> hey. We're going to be back in just a minute, and uh, we'll move on to the next song, all right? Stick around. Sunlight plays upon her head song <laughs> go ahead you keep talking it's your show man here we go who doesn't feel good when you hear that intro and just that sound that that just, is you know the that an initial vocal is just oh, man watch well, this uplifting yeah. So if if you don't know, that's good vibrations by the Beach Boys, and uh, you can probably I want you to talk about this one because it is called a pocket symphony, and that was yeah a description used by one of the producers was like yes this is this is a song that doesn't follow the normal pattern of writing a rock and roll song. This is a symphony that has different movements to it, and that was really something that the Beach Boys sort of pioneered at that time and brian wilson did of this is this is more of a symphony this is we move from this place in the song to this place to this place 
And it's not necessarily just verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, get out. Which I've always been a fan of, but uh, this you is not that First chorus, <laughs> get out and move on to the next song, kid. It's, it's three minutes of your life. <laughs> Let's move on, you know? Well, and the, you, you mentioned three minutes because of the songs that we've talked about so far, I think this is probably the first one that goes beyond three minutes in length. This is three and a half minutes. Right. And, uh, you know, for the time, that's like we, you would call right a magnum now. opus, but... Um, uh, they spent so much time and so much money on this song. For one it's song, like it was it was like recording an album. Yeah, they spent yeah. as much as most bands w- would take to record an album, and they multiple sessions. Yeah, and it months was, of work. It was like eight months. It was re you know it was rumored or it was at least documented that it it, it took them about eight months from when Brian. Uh, conceptualized it and played it for Carl and they, you know, this was like in February and they recorded it all the way through September. And then, um, like you said, it, it's an opus and, and the uh, song has m- movements as well as Brian was really pioneering the, the, the whole thing of he was, he was the first one to actually start using the recording studio as an instrument because he was just so connected with what was in his right. mind. And, and, and part of what that means is that he was cutting the tape. Right. It's like, we'll record a section here with certain instruments. We're going to cut that section of tape off. We're going to record another section with different instruments. And then we're going to splice them together. And he would add a lot of reverb and stuff on to sort of hide the edits that go through. But the song is the song is written and recorded in so many sections that were done individually over many different recording sessions, you know. And in different studios, um, right? I mean, I don't believe. Yes. No, there, so, there are I mean, several different was... studios. And, um, and so when we say using the recording studio as an instrument... The, the guy literally was cutting tape and splicing things together and then trying to make them sound like they were all part of one big thing. Pretty seamless for 1966, let's be fair. I mean, he, you know, I mean, if, no, if you listen to it, it's, it's fairly And even, even then they mixed down to mono because it's only 1966. They mixed down to mono for the release and as far as I know, no true stereo recording exists of this song until Brian did it later. Um, he sort of came out uh, a number of years ago with a version of uh, the the Smile album was supposed to come out. And, and, and then it came out a Smiley Smile. And then Brian Wilson later, much later, redid it as Smile and did a version of uh, Good Vibrations and Stereo. But uh, the, the original version that you listen to is is not a stereo mix. Wow. You know, and... And it's so lush. It's just so full. Yeah, for, you know, a mono recording. And then uh, the musicians that played on that, Mike Love, of course, was, uh, was the co-lead vocals on that. Brian Wilson did vocals. Carl Wilson actually did the lead vocals. And uh, Dennis Wilson, the drummer, was on Hammond, Oregon. And then here's uh, here's the key, kids. <clears throat> Carol Kay was supposedly involved in many sessions, but apparently never made uh, a final edit on that. And I believe she was playing bass. Is that how that 
Yeah, and, and she, you know, she's known for playing on thousands and thousands of sessions, and she was there, but they're like, eh, that that didn't quite make the cut. <laughs> it's interesting because as we talk about uh, the last song, there's an interesting person that didn't play in that song either, and it's like, so Hal Blaine played drums on this cut, and Dennis Wilson didn't. He played the Hammond organ. So yeah, there's others on the harp- harpsichord, uh, the cello, the harmonica. I mean, it, it surely is a symphony flute. And of course, the main instrument in this one, the old, is it a theremin, right? Is that how? The theremin, yeah. By Paul Tanner. And with the, uh, you know, that, I mean, that makes the song. <clears throat> but speaking about how much time and money that they spent on this, supposedly... Uh, back then, the theremin just to record that cost be, in 1966 dollars was between ten and fifteen thousand dollars to record the theremin. Yeah, well, it really didn't have a an output that you could put into a recording console. <laughs> Where do I plug this so in? At? Figure, <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen anybody play a theremin? I have not. <laughs> I have. I saw. Um, Oh, Collective Unconscious and a group of other people from around St. Cloud have done uh, uh, pet sounds and and other Beach Boys things and stuff. And they actually had a theremin there. It's not easy to play because you don't actually touch the instrument. You move your hands around it. Wow. And the proximity of your hand to the sensor changes the tone. Yep. Good vibrations. (laughs) Yeah. Well, which, I mean, was really kind of... It, it sort of emphasized the whole idea of, yeah, we're not actually touching this, but there are vibrations coming from us. And, um, you know, the, the song hit number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. It hits number six on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Hits number one on Mojo's Top 100 Records of All Time. There you go. But the whole idea of... Um, cosmic vibrations his mom told him as a child that dogs sometimes bark at people in response to their bad vibrations and so he was thinking about extrasensory perception and um you know well what are good vibrations then right and mike love who i think what they're cousins yeah uh, um, yeah I believe so. Uh, so the whole flower power thing was going on or just getting, you know, really rolling in Southern California. And so Mike Love, his lyrics really went into the whole good vibrations type of thing. And uh, Well, there you go. It's still 66. We were still pretty happy as a nation. <laughs> we hadn't started Vietnam yet. So we were... Well, no, I, well, we had, but... Uh, well, we had, but... not. We weren't not into the anti-war movement at that yeah. point. Yeah. You know, and it's an interesting song in that people right away recognize that this was important. Um, critics that listened to it and, and people that heard it were like, okay, this is a big deal because this is so different than so much of what has come out before. And uh, that was just a total. I, it's one of those things where people go, all right, that's it. It's like hearing the, the riff to satisfaction. Right. It's like, okay, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah it's a staple. You know, you hear that. And it's like, I'm, I'm going to hear that forever. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, speaking of, the, speaking of the first song, 
that we did wild thing. <laughs> the trucks. Have you heard this? I have not. <laughs> you have not. Okay, you're about to hear it right now. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently. <laughs> I could I wow. could go on, but yeah, no, that's very. It's very much in the style of William Shatner doing <laughs> Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and and yeah. some of those things very early yeah. on. It's like it's a spoken word sort of. It is, wow. yeah. <laughs> At least, yeah, it, it's a wow. At least the Trogs, you know, stuck to their style of <laughs> let's make anything three chords, and by golly, they. Uh, they did. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've uh, pretty well covered that because, yeah, it's, it was one of the most expensive songs. And I think um, there are rumors out there on the Internet of how many miles of tape were used to, to actually try to record all the I different tracks. That, yeah. and, and just, yeah. So, you know, I mean, and I'm not sure if, if we put it in, into perspective, but what they spent in 1966 on that single would... T- uh, at least last year, I think 2016, the the figure is would be close to four hundred to six hundred thousand dollars for that one song. Well, it's it's more than you or I have to record now. <laughs> it is. I am a I'm a, I'm a little short. So. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear. And the way the sunlight plays upon her head I hear the sound of a gentle On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations Yeah, so Just Like a Woman by Bob Dylan, and he sort of improvised. I've l- listened to a lot of takes of this. He improvised a lot of lyrics and changed them every single time before <laughs> and, finally getting what was on <laughs> recording. Yeah, and so let me throw this in there because if you read, I mean, it, it, you know, if you like Bob Dylan and you know Bob Dylan and you start reading about this song, it was like, well, he. He improvised, or sometimes he wouldn't pronounce his words all the way. And I'm like, he's Bob Dylan. He doesn't pronounce his words. So I'm like, duh. <laughs> so I was I was curious, you know, it's this song, you know, if you say one of these things is not like the other, this song is different than the other two that you pulled up from 1966. So what was your interest in it pulling is. up just like a woman. I love the song. Right. And I expected this comment from you, Jimbo. I expected <laughs> the fans out there. It's like, Nick, there were so many other songs. 
you could pull from. And so <clears throat> this the, this song always comes to mind. But, and of course, I found out it was 1966 when it was released. But in my early 20s, uh, in my car, I only had an AM radio. And so back then, the oldie station uh, played 50s and 60s. So I, I, I heard this song quite a bit. And, and for some reason, even like the first time I heard it, I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's it's classic. Number one, it's classic Bob Dylan writing. You know, it's like he is the storyteller. And uh, uh, a, a little funny story is the, the first couple of times I heard this and actually until I read the lyrics, I always thought uh, one of the lines was, is that we marry, she's my friend. Yes, I believe I'll go see her again. So I'm like, he's going to get a booty call. I'm like, right on, Bob. You know, they're still married. But but the actual line is, Queen Mary, she's my friend. I believe I'll go see her again. So I don't know if he's, <laughs> you know, it it's Bob. So is he talking about Queen Mary or did he name somebody queen mary but for me listening to this song um you know and being in my early 20s and 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 still trying to figure out you know women and and i really hadn't been jaded yet when i listen to the song you know i always think that a woman does a lot of things woman-like but when you break it down they're very fragile and you know they, they they break just like a little girl and then as I keep uh, listening to the song, for me, you know, being a man is when he has the uh, uh, line, please don't let on that you knew me when I was hungry and it was your world. And so, you know, that spoke to me as, you know, being a man, don't let anybody know that you had to carry me in this relationship because I'm the man. <laughs> and, you know, that doesn't go over so well. <laughs> so. Typical, typical Dylan that. Even though there are claims of misogyny and and being anti-woman, oh, yeah. that there are a lot of layers of context to the song, where you're not quite sure if he's being ironic about this or playing a character who says these things, but realizes that that's not necessarily true. Um, it's a it, and I think that's one of the things that attracts us to a lot of different songs is that there's more going on. And in this case, you know, of the songs that we've looked at, you know, over the last few episodes, this is lyrically dense. There's a this lot of stuff. Pretty, going yeah, on this is pretty deep, you know, and and like, you know, us both being songwriters and for the songwriters out there, it's probably not about just one story or one girl. I mean, Bob's very good at, you know, intertwining things, and you know, there's there there's a lot of information on this song as well, and it's like. Exactly. Is he talking about man versus woman? Is he degrading women? And to me, I get it. it it's that personal struggle with woman against girl or, you know, it's 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 a person against themselves and, you know, just trying to cope and um, immaturity versus maturity. Well, sure. I mean, you know, and, and I think we can all go through that. So, um, but this song was released in 19 uh, August of 66 and it's from the album Blonde on Blonde. And in Bob Dylan's style, even for 1966, the album version, which there's many versions, but the one that's on the album is four minutes and 53 seconds. But, you know, back then, the old censors, uh, they made her 
under three minutes, so it was at two fifty six. Well, you know the 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 rule was that you can't go over three minutes. <laughs> yeah, for a long time um, until like Hey Jude came out, and it was like six minutes. And yeah, six or seven minutes, I think actually. That and in a in a Davida was like an entire side of an album, and yeah. you know, so we we changed those rules. But, uh, so this was on Blonde <laughs> on Blonde. Do you have a copy of Blonde on Blonde? I do not. I know that you do. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's I do. It's a it's a no. It's an awesome album. Yeah. Um. So, you know, in addition to Dylan, Charlie McCoy was on there. Joseph Souter, Wayne Moss, Henry. Gosh, I always miss his name. Strzelecki. There you go. I think. And then Pig Robbins was on piano. Al Cooper. Yes, I love Al Cooper. Hey, Al Cooper was on organ. <laughs> I do. I love Al Cooper. <laughs> and Kenny Kenny Buntry on drums. So, I mean, it, you know, as always, he surrounded himself with very high quality players, including the members of the band and people like Robbie Robertson. Right. Who was who his... was there at? He was there at the session. <laughs> yeah, but. <laughs> He wasn't allowed to play. I shouldn't say he wasn't allowed to play. Well, but he, he didn't. He didn't end up on the final. There you know, go. He didn't end recording up of the song. So. Yeah. So, this song reached number thirty-three on the Billboard Hot One Hundred. They didn't release it in the UK, but Manfred Mann, you know, Manfred Mann's Earth yeah. Band, which went through many permutations over their years. Yeah. Um, they re- released a version in the UK that made it to number ten. And this one also ranks somewhere in the middle of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. I think 232 it came out at. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's an odd pick. But like you said, I mean, it, it just, it's one of those songs that, you know, we all have a song that speaks to us. And mm-hmm. every time I hear it, I'm like, huh. So. All right. Tell me about the lyrics, man. Well, you know, like we said, I mean, so... Nobody has to guess that baby can't be blessed till she sees like she's all the rest with her fog, her amphetamine, and her pearls. That line has always stuck with me, too. So one theory on this is that it refers to Edie Sedgwick uh, or some similar debutante of the time. But uh, Edie was one of Andy Warhol's superstars. And unfortunately, she did pass away in 1971 at the age of 28 from a barbiturate overdose. <laughs> so, um, then as we go uh, to the line that I uh, had mentioned earlier, it's also rumored to be about Dylan's relationship with fellow folk singer Joan Baez. But in, in the line is, please don't let on that you knew me when I was hungry and it was your world which may refer to the early days of the relationship when Joan Baez was actually more famous than Bob Dylan. So, Yeah, well, I've heard both the Edie Sedgwick and the, the Joan Baez lines, and some critics are like, being Dylan, it probably wasn't one person. It was a merger of relationships and, and different things going on, and, and a lot of stream of consciousness reciting of lyrics or creating lyrics in the studio. Right. Um, so this song was covered later by Stevie Nicks, um, Street Album, and have Street you heard Angel. That version? I guess I haven't. I have. Yeah. I listened to it once. Yeah. But the thing I didn't know, I didn't realize that um, 
when Loren Scott passed away, Mick Jagger's significant other yeah. in 2014, that he sang he sang that song at her funeral. I did not know that. Yeah, that would have that probably would have been a pretty tough one to handle. So, yeah. But um, and the <laughs> do you read Stephen King stuff? I do, and then I actually go ahead and talk about this. I actually read that, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you go back to Carrie, and then, so in the Stephen King novel Carrie, there's a notebook that Carrie has, and it's filled with, nobody has to guess that baby can't be blessed till she finally sees that she's like all the rest. So the, the line we just talked about yeah, that's is, is in Carrie. And then, of course, the, the lighter side of things. <laughs> The Simpsons, uh, the, Simpsons <laughs> the Simpsons, which have been on forever, um, had an episode where <laughs> Lenny Leonard is over a slot machine during the elementary uh, school's casino night. And he says that he's a big man and the machine falls back on him. And then when he, <laughs> he's got the machine on top of him, he says, but I break just like a little girl. There you go. <laughs> All right, I think we better move on, huh? We better move on. So we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. Yep. Right, we're back for a moment of trivia. Here we go. A moment of zen, and this time I'm surprising you because the last song was Just Like a Woman. I have a quiz for you. Okay. Of men who have played women <clears throat> in the movies. So you have, to, you have to tell me who played whom, all right? I got you. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So some of these are going to be easy, and some of these are going to be a little bit more difficult. So this will be this will be interesting. Here we go. All right, which actor played the role of Mabel Medea Simmons in several movies? Who played Medea? Here I'll give you choices. Perfect. Eddie Murphy, Tyler Perry, Martin yes. Lawrence, or Sean Wayans. Tyler Perry, and you're. Yeah, it is Tyler Perry. Of course it is. <laughs> I'll have you know that in 2011, mm-hmm. Forbes, Forbes magazine named him the highest paid male entertainer in 2011. Tyler Perry? Yes. <laughs> for for He does these movies and then he releases them independently. Oh. And so I get, I mean, he basically owns the whole show. He keeps all the money. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> Number two. Okay. In what movie does Dustin Hoffman play difficult actor Michael Dorsey, who, desperate for a role, auditions as a female? This is a stupid question because the answers are Tootsie, Bootsie, Footsie, and Hootsie. Wow. Let's go with Tootsie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, the film, which is an awesome film and has Bill Murray in it, too, and stuff, but... Uh, Ten Oscar nominations. 
The only one who won was Jessica Lange for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Wow. I knew it was up yep. for a lot. <laughs> yep. All right, number three. Which male actor donned a house dress and gray wig to play the frumpy Mrs. Euphigenia Doubtfire? <laughs> <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, John Lithgow, Robin Williams, or Harvey Fierstein? Robin Williams. In yes, of course. Classic role. Which is silly. All right, well, here we're going back to a movie dear, near and dear to my heart, in which 1959 comedy <laughs> movie, <laughs> it stars Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> in this movie, um, in which, what's the name of the movie that Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon played female roles? Your choices are The Seven Year Itch, Some Like It Hot, how to Marry a Millionaire, or Don't Bother to Knock. I'm going to guess on this one, because I think it's Some Like It Hot. It is Some Like It Hot. And you have to watch that movie if you have not already, because it I is one of... I have. It is one of the greatest movies ever created. It's a very classic performance by all of those people, and it was one of Marilyn Monroe's last movies... And she was not in great shape during it, but uh, they managed to pull it together. <laughs> Piece her together. All right. Number five, which male actor posed as the bride in the 1949 comedy I Was a Male War Bride? Humphrey Bogart, Spencer Tracy, Jimmy Stewart, or Cary Grant? <clears throat> Total guess on this one, 49. Let's say Jimmy Stewart. It was actually Cary Grant. Really? But you made a, a you made a good turn. Made it back. Yes, Cary Grant. <laughs> I was a male warbred. All right. Now this one's complicated, so you have to listen to this. Which male actor appeared in his last film role? So this means this person's no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Which male actor appeared in his last film role as Edna Turnblad in Hairspray? But this is the nineteen eighty eight version. Okay. So do you know what the name was? And, and here are your choices. John Travolta, John Candy, Harvey Fierstein, or Divine? Well, John Candy's no longer with us, so let's go with that one. <laughs> well, the a- answer is actually Divine, <sighs> whose real name was Harris Glenn Milstead was a transgender, performed as a singer, uh, actor, a drag queen, and a friend sort of dubbed him Divine. And so John Waters came along and made uh, Hairspray, and, uh, and, and Divine died from an enlarged heart in 1988. Oh. Um, and later on, Harvey Feuerstein did play Edna in the 2002 Broadway musical version, and Travolta then later on in, in the uh, 2007 movie musical, which is also a great, great film. Yeah. But, uh, all right. Number seven. Usually it's a comedy role when a male plays a female, but there was nothing funny when Anthony Perkins dressed in his mother's clothes in which classic horror film? Your choices are Black Sunday, Psycho, Eyes Without a Face, or Tormented. Norman? Of course, it's <laughs> Psycho. It's Psycho, yes. You're not going to miss that. No, no. 
The next one tripped me up. Ooh. In which two, in which 2007 comedy does Eddie Murphy play three roles? One being the overweight and overbearing female character, Rasputia Lattimore. Is the movie Norbit, White Chicks, Big Mama's House, or The Nutty Professor? I can see where this one could trick you up. And I have two choices, so I'm trying to think. Is it the son? Is it the son of Flubber? <laughs> that wasn't one of the choices. Oh, who was my last choice? <laughs> the that nutty, pro- the was nutty professor yeah. was the last choice. <laughs> oh, Hercules! Hercules! I th- I'm going to go with the nutty <laughs> professor. I th- I guess that too. It's actually ah, Norbit. It's Norbit. Dang it! <laughs> Hercules! Hercules! So is that from Norbit? Yes. Oh. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know that I've ever actually seen Norbit. Oh, but, uh, well, you should. <laughs> um, well, according to movie critics, I shouldn't. So, um, oh, yeah. Number nine. <laughs> Which actor played R- Roberta Muldoon, a transsexual ex-football player in The World According to Garp? Robin Williams, Bob Hoskins, Jeff Bridges, or John Lithgow? You know, and I haven't seen this movie long enough to... Dang it. Uh, hmm. Jeff Bridges. Oh, John Lithgow. Classic movie, classic role. Just, uh, oh, he was so good. And I think he was nominated for an Academy, Academy Award for that, too. Really? Yep, he... Uh, he got a nomination anyway for uh, portraying Roberta. He didn't win, but uh, it, it was it was a it was a pretty big deal, and that was back in 1982. So, wow. all right, the last question: the points don't matter; it's all made up. <laughs> That's right. In what 2000 comedy does Martin Lawrence star as an FBI agent? Martin Lawrence stars in a, as an FBI agent who disguises himself as a grandmother in order to catch an escaped convict. It's Big Mama Returns, Big Mama's House 2, Big Mama's House, (laughs) or Big Mama's Like Father, Like Son. Wow. Uh, Big Mama (laughs) 2. It's actually, it's Big Mama's House and the funny thing is, the movie the movie wasn't that popular, but they made two sequels. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I guess it maybe it made money, and so that was the reason. But it's like the the movie wasn't really that popular, but it was worth two sequels. Apparently, wow. All right, well, hey, I think we're gonna get out of here now because that was fun, but it went on for a while. So it was it was fun, and uh, but before we get out of here. Uh, big news for all you out there. Uh, we are now listed on iTunes under your podcast. Yes. yes, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Actually, if you just go to songsyoushouldknow.com, songsyoushouldknow.com, um, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can listen to us right there off the website. Uh, and as always, we don't make this stuff up. We don't. I Even mean, we know it a, seems like it. <laughs> we, we, we know a lot of this stuff, but we don't make it all up. So, you know, you have access to the same resources we do: Wikipedia, Song Facts, 
the entire internet. All right. Use it, people. <laughs> Use your resources. That's a safety and tip for the day. <laughs> and with that, we'll see you soon. See you soon. Thank you, everybody. Frontal fly does. There we go. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.